I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Chloe Cooper-Jones. Hello, Chloe. Welcome to Our Shelves. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. It's lovely for you to be here. So Chloe Cooper-Jones is a philosophy professor and a journalist who was a finalist for the 2020 Pulitzer Prize in feature writing. Her work has appeared in publications including GQ, The Verge, Vice, Book Forum, New York Magazine and The Believer, and has been selected for both the best American travel writing and the best American sports writing. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, which is where she's calling in from today. That's right, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's gray and gray and rainy here. Oh, we have sun in the UK for the first time in months. So <laughs> a rare occasion where I can be smug. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Chloe, Virago is publishing your first book, a memoir called Easy Beauty, next week, uh, which means that our listeners won't quite have had the chance to read it for themselves yet. So I was wondering if you could begin by giving them a sort of exclusive sneak peek, uh, telling them a bit about what it uh, what this book does. And as I just mentioned, you've written for all manner of very distinguished publications and your feature writing has won much acclaim. So I'm really fascinated to know what point you decided to turn your attention to a book, because that's a very different project in itself. And what was the specific attraction of memoir and particularly the type of memoir that you've written? Well, so the book takes place over roughly, the present of the book takes place roughly over 18 months. Hmm. And it was 18 months in which I was traveling quite a bit for different journalism projects um, and also projects related to my philosophy research. And the book really began with me sort of having this awareness that whenever I was in public spaces or when I was in conversations with people, I would very actively um, downplay or ignore my physical disability Mm -hmm. and that I'd spent my whole life in many ways just pretending it didn't exist, which is impossible because my physical disability is very visual. It's immediately recognizable. Um, It's not, I can't ever pass as not disabled. Um, So it, it was a a form of sort of cognitive dissonance that I used to sort of self-protect and at the beginning of the book, I am sitting in a bar with two friends, um, both philosophers in my same PhD program, my philosophy PhD program, who, um, after a conversation about a bioethics case, make an argument um, that perhaps my life as a disabled person isn't worth living. And in that moment, I kind of recognized that because I had lived my whole life uh, absenting myself from really having these types of conversations or working on forming a language to explain my body, my identity, and the value of my disability and the complexity of my life, which is which is not actually all that different from, from, from other people's lives. Yeah. Uh, the complex relationships, and we all have a deeply, deeply complex relationships with our bodies. Mm. And I had been pretending for so long that I wasn't having that relationship, even though it was evident that I was. So that moment really began for me um, a quest to sort of figure out how to live more comfortably 
not only in my own body, but in, in the present moment, in the world. So the way that this project really began is I was doing all this journalism stuff and I was traveling all the time and I was putting myself in very public spaces that you have to do to, to move your body around the world. And mm-hmm. instead of sort of pretending that people weren't looking at me or pretending that people weren't reacting to me, I just made a very conscious choice to pay attention to it, to pay attention to how it made me feel, to pay attention to how my body felt, to embrace a an explicit consciousness of these things and to write about it. So I wrote it just for myself. I wrote these diary entries. I was keeping journals and I was, as I was keeping these journals, I was writing down a lot, a lot of observations about the places that I was in, the people that I was meeting, the conversations I was having with strangers. But because I have training as an academic, I was also thinking through things I had read in my life, pieces of theory mm-hmm. or aesthetic philosophy that really helped me frame the experiences I was having in a, in a brand new way. And I had no intention of it becoming public. <laughs> <laughs> so what changed? When did you realize that this was going to be something that you would put out in the world? Well, I had written a piece for um, The Cut, which is part of New York Magazine, mm-hmm. Uh, that was largely about my son and my son's Wolfgang. His name is Wolfgang. Um, his ability, because my body is the least interesting thing in the world to him. Like I've owned, <laughs> like you know, I'm just his mother. Yeah. Like there's yeah. absolutely nothing weird about me. And, and in fact, he's the only person that has ever looked at me with out the context of disability because mm-hmm. he's born into my arms and of course, and then. I'm his mother. So he met me before he met the social construction of disability. So his relationship to my body and to the idea of disability is so unique. And I wrote a short, really short piece about um, him sort of explaining my disability to a young girl, his own age, who was staring at me and the kind of dialogue he could have Mm. with her that I couldn't have. And then after that piece came out, uh, the an editor at the believer said just keep writing about this asked me for another piece and i wrote this piece called such perfection which is about being in italy and i also kind of thought no one would see it ever mm. uh, but it went pretty viral in in the states and got a lot of attention and then there were editors that were like maybe this is a book <laughs> <laughs> that classic editor line like what about a book and I was like, no, <laughs> no, I guess it's, it felt like such a, a profoundly personal project mm. and also a deeply vulnerable project. Yeah, and absolutely. It was a project I think I was largely undertaking for, for the betterment of my family too, to learn how to be a better mother, to be more present and, and to model self-acceptance for my son. And so I wasn't really thinking about it being for, for anyone else. But as I was writing it, it felt really, you know, important um, that it be for other people, that it not just be about me or about my specific body or about my specific um, disability, but rather about the sort of larger and hopefully universal feeling that we all have these places in our lives that we with- retreat from. Mm. And that some of those places, uh, some of those moments of retreat can be quite powerful and they can be moments of agency and peace that we give ourselves. Yeah. But there's always sort of a, to me, a threshold between that, that peace and that agency that we gift ourselves through peaceful retreat. There's like, that's the good side of it. And then there's typically this threshold that if we cross it, it becomes a tool for avoidance. Hmm. And I really wanted to write a whole book about, myself toggling between that threshold or trying to locate that threshold or trying to be more intentional about which side of that threshold I was on. And my hope is that when people read this book, they don't think that's only about disability. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's about being, you know, alive. That's about being human. That, yeah. 
Yeah, well, one of the things I found while I was reading it really fascinating um, was that some of the most sort of intimate and vulnerable moments were not for me necessarily you talking about your bodily experiences, although obviously you're laying yourself bare there, but some of the way in which you were able to so eloquently put on the page the way that you were sort of wrestling with ideas and wrestling with like your place in the world and wrestling with what you thought versus what other people thought. To me, that was the sort of most that was the most intimate part of it and the sort of most fascinating. And it wasn't, you know, it is a book about your own bodily experience. It is a book about disability, but it's so much more than that. It's about art. It's about, you know, beauty. It's about love. It's about sports. It's about, you know, (laughs) the way that we interact with each other and the sort of, you know, the way that we don't interact with each other and what happens in those sorts of scenarios. There's so much kind of packed in there. It's um I thought it was a really beautiful and and sort of impressive work of art that you managed to kind of get so much into that as well as it being such a personal, you know, story about your life and your experiences. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And that is sincerely the the intention of it that it is about motherhood, it is about disability, it is in some ways about you know, personal things in my own life, but I, I don't think that's who the book is for, mm. you know, like it's not for like some narrow conception of no gender. Um, and I also think that one of the grounding sort of the thesis, the grounding thesis of the book in many ways, both implicitly and explicitly comes from novelist and philosopher, Iris Murdoch, who I use a quote of hers for the epigraph and also reference an idea of hers throughout, you know, sort of threaded throughout the whole book. She really had this belief that an experience of beauty and by beauty, she meant beauty with another that you saw in another person, beauty that you saw in nature, beauty that you found in an art gallery or with a work of art, beauty that you found in performance, um, all the ways in which we use that, that word and feel that sense um, that we that we give the meaning or or the term beauty or we attach the the term beauty to. She really believed that experiences like that could make us better people and better agents and better members of our communities. And she believed that what happened when you turned your attention to beauty is that you got a little release from from yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Her, her, her great line is, you know, you're sort of getting a break from your own fat, relentless ego. Mm. And she gives this great example where she says, I'm sitting at a window and I'm worried about my own, you know, stuff, right? She's, she's anxious about uh, her own reputation or something that happened to her that day. And she's really stuck in her own head. And then she sees a kestrel. And in that moment, the only thing that exists is the beauty of the kestrel. She's sort of distracted by it. And then when she returns to herself, she feels differently. She feels that she's gained perspective and that by turning her fine, you know, fine tuning her attention outward to beauty, to the world and to a coexistence with other people, that it shifts her thoughts and it shifts her concepts. And by shifting her concepts shifts, her actions necessarily, right? So that's an explicit thesis throughout the book where I know I need to change something about myself and I'm using Iris Murdoch's idea of of beauty being an agent for change, Mm. not just for pleasure, which I think is often very unfortunately what beauty gets reduced down to. A mere source of pleasure or entertainment, but she thinks has great personal and political value and I really wanted to make that argument as well through my own experience and also invite other people, you know, by reading about these things to wonder if an experience of beauty for them has done any powerful mental conceptual shifting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, the, the implicit idea is just if you spend all your time, you know, this is not the thing that's stated um explicitly in the book, but if I get you to spend 288 pages deep in the experience of the life of a disabled person being me, can that experience shift your concepts of disability? So Iris Murdoch thinks that it can. And if it shifts your concept, it shifts your behavior and your actions. And so in a way, the book is testing both of those 
theories, but also hopefully feels like a very open conversation with the reader or an inviting conversation to wonder about whether that is really possible in their own lives or whether an instance of beauty can do that for them. Mm. Yeah, I think I definitely, as a reading this, I found myself coming back to my own thinking about certain experiences in my life, thinking about like my own relationship to beauty or what these sort of moments do. And it's quite rare, I think, to find a book that is both, that is sort of classified as memoir, supposedly about someone else, but also makes you think so much about yourself. Do you have any examples of things you thought about that you thought were sort of lens shifting experiences of beauty or? I'm not sure. I think that the one about the Kestrel definitely, I mean, that's the sort of obvious one to come to, but I did start thinking then about moments of looking at birds in particular, because I think, I mean, I guess it's a kind of very stereotypical one, but birds are such a kind of obvious moment of beauty I think in lots of people's lives and I have a a sort of relative of mine um, who is particularly fond of herons and so whenever I'm passing anywhere that's you know got potential for herons I always stop and look and it always takes me out of the moment and in that moment I'm looking at the, the I'm looking at that particular heron but I'm also thinking about what it what it means what for someone else looking at this bird might think and what the person mm. I don't know it's, it's I'm not being very articulate about it but there's something about I think birds are really fascinating in that way yeah I love that I'm not a birder but it like perfectly makes sense to me that people would and it fits Iris Murdoch's thesis so well like to walk out in nature to seek actively seek to find something beautiful in nature because that's part of like the whole fascination with birds is they're elusive and you can see them and then you can you know be excited of this like instance of beauty I mean I think Iris Murdoch really believes that all those things they're not self-indulgent they're not for pleasure they're not for just a nice walk in the countryside but they actually actively get you out of the incredibly sort of limited suffocating space of your own perspective yes yes I wonder if also I mean maybe it's a really obvious thing to say but I think with birds in particular when you see them particularly when you see the bird in flight I think you are automatically thinking about maybe the perspective of that but what it's like Mm -hmm. to kind of be in a completely different position to the one that you hold and see the world in such a different way and to kind of I don't know to be a part of it in a very different way perhaps I love that. Yeah, that's so good. I've never thought of that. But you know, what's interesting is, I think the book that influenced me the most, not in content necessarily, but certainly structurally, I feel I learned so much from and I owe a tremendous debt to is H is for Hawk by Helen MacDonald. That I mean, that, that definitely springs to mind when I think about this. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think that's obviously like, she's so that's what she's very connected to. I really admire that book so much. And I think it's structured so well. But I think that is in many ways, you know, when she's thinking about how to move inside and outside and around the experience of grief, mm. using the natural world as a tool to help her do that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah fascinating I feel like we could talk about this for hours we have to move into some of the other questions here I think some of them are going to pick up on things that are important in your book so first of all I think you're going to tell me about a couple of books that are currently on your bedside table Chloe you've got two one is a non-fiction one is fiction I think yes absolutely so I'm about halfway through Jared McGuinness's The Coward Mm. which I am absolutely loving it's so funny and I wish I had read this you know, many years ago, it didn't exist. So it's it's fine. But um, and I, I really admire him as a writer. So that novel, it's interesting, because he it's, a, it's called a novel, but he at the very beginning says, he has a nice epigraph, and I won't quote it perfectly. But it's something like, the difference between a memoir and a novel is lies. I can't remember exactly what it is. But he really emphasizes the fact that this is probably deeply auto fictional, right? This is very much about his life. The central character is named Jared McGinnis, and it tells the story of him um, getting into a car accident, becoming paralyzed, and then moving back in with a father whom he's been estranged from, Mm -hmm. and then beginning his life um, as a disabled man. And the way that he writes about disability and the way that he writes about his experiences 
rings so true to me, even though he and I have very different experience of, experiences of disability. Mm-hmm. He's so funny and he's so honest. And I think one of the things that I really admire the most too is a theme that comes up a lot in the book, at least so far, is he wants to explain to people that this isn't as big of a deal to him as it seems to be to other people. So right. a lot of the people around him are trying to turn this into a massive tragedy. And I think what he's really grappling with is there's so much other stuff in my life that has hurt me so much more. The death of his mother, um, his own sort of struggles with himself and addiction and his father. And that in many ways, disability, while it's shown, it's often reflected back to disabled people as this grand tragedy that makes our lives not even worth living. But the lived experience of disability is not markedly different than the lived, your lived experiences. Like we're just still people in a body yeah. uh, navigating the world the best we can. And he really tries to articulate that in a way I don't feel like I've seen done so well. So mm. I'm really admiring that book very much. It sounds brilliant. I haven't read it yet, but I've read plenty of very glowing reviews and you've just added to that. So I must get hold of it. The other book I'm, re- I'm rereading, it's a book I read have now read many times and I'm hugely an admirer of the scholar. Her name is Rosemary Garland Thompson. She's written quite a bit about disability and also more specifically about disability aesthetics. So Mm -hmm. that is a really crucial topic for me. And this book is called Staring. I think I've now read, read it like four or five times, but I'm using it to write something right now. So the book is a historical sociological, psychological, and personal history of the act of staring. So it covers what happens physiologically in the mind when we stare, Mm. the way that the stare has evolved from our startle response, which is um, a survival mechanism. The I wants to and has to isolate and seize upon things in our environment that are strange or unusual or potentially harmful. And to stare is a physical, like tangible view of the mind sort of stalling out, not being able to categorize what it's seeing. Okay. So when you're staring, this there's all the sort of physical processes that are happening in your mind trying to be like, What is this thing? Why is it here? What's wrong? Why is it in my environment? Is it going to kill me? Is it a bear attacking me? Is it okay? Oh, and then you figure out what it is and your brain categorizes it for you. And that is an important mechanism, but what, and it's a natural mechanism, but what Rosemary Garland Thompson really traces is what it means to then live in a sterile body, which is a term. So if you live in a body that constantly elicits stares from other people, what does that mean? What kind of dynamic does that create in the mind of the person with the sterile body? Because this is very personal to me. I can't really go into public ever. I mean, there's no public task that I can do without entering into this dynamic relationship of the starer and the starey. Yeah. It's everywhere. Uh, I can't go to the bodega or, you know, take my son to school without encountering or eliciting the stares of strangers. And that is a constant reminder that I'm an odd thing, that I'm out of place, that I'm unusual, and that I am strange. And for a long time, I conceptualized this as a one-way process where mm-hmm. the staring was happening to me right. and I had to wear it or endure it. But what Rosemary Garland Thompson really talks a lot about is that it's a dynamic relationship and that, in fact, you're connected for a moment. And you can look at that connection as an uncomfortable one, as even a dangerous one, but you can also look at it as an opportunity for knowledge or for shaping the way that people look. Uh, And she has some ideas about how to do that and how to perform what she kind of calls visual activism. Okay. Yeah. And I find that to be such a fascinating thing because essentially one, one important part of visual activism is uh, 
is allowing your a disabled body to be visible. Yeah. <laughs> That's like step one. And to make the disabled body a slightly less strange thing by making it more visible. And that's something that for me is really hard. I always want to sort of hide or evade the feeling of people looking. But she sees that as part of an important important social and political act. Do you feel, um, this is a rather personal question, but does it, reading this book, does it sort of, does it give you a permission to be a different way when you're stared at? Do you, has it changed your relationship in those sort of, those encounters with other people? Because I haven't read this book, but I was doing a bit of research before I spoke to you today and I listened to a video that she, um, in which she was talking about this book and she was talking about how traditionally, like anyone who's sort of written academic about staring has often focused on the person who is doing the staring and obviously the person who is being stared at has been sort of weirdly invisible even though they are the point of you know they are the thing that's being looked at they are the person who's being looked at um and I just wondered what it makes you know did it did it sort of change your relationship to this does it make you kind of more comfortable with it more uncomfortable it really changed my relationship to it So one of the things she says, and I think this is so true, is if you think about the act of staring, what's really happening is that the mind is searching for knowledge. Hmm. It's looking to understand what it's seeing. And there was this study, this is actually not in her book, but it's from research that I was doing outside of it. There's this study um, that I think, I can't remember exactly where this was, maybe UCLA, but that researchers did the study on babies and they were showing babies unusual examples of like physics misbehaving. So what I mean by this is like they would show a baby like um, a marble rolling down a hill and then disappearing through, like phasing through a wall or a marble rolling down a hill and over a big gap and like not falling in the gap. Right. And they would show the baby like standard images of things behaving the laws of physics, you know, the marble not being stopped by the wall instead of phasing through it. Yeah. What they found is that in the questionable or confusing images, the babies would stare really like a really long time. Okay. The secondary thing would happen, which was the babies would all engage with the confusing thing. They would want more knowledge and they would want to play with it they would want to understand it and they would want to bring it closer to them okay and that it became this like incredibly productive moment of learning and engagement in the world for these babies and then the thing is is like and that was true for all these babies but then unfortunately babies grow up <laughs> and they, <laughs> they get introduced to cultural interpretations mm-hmm. of staring and if you're a disabled person the one thing you've heard the most or overheard the most in your whole life is the phrase, don't stare. So there becomes this stigma on staring that it is a culturally dangerous or somewhat illicit thing to do, but it's also this natural thing to do. Mm. So in the mind of the starer, there's a a natural dissonance of both wanting or needing physiologically to do this thing, but it also being illicit. And then also it's being, they're being shamed for it. Or they're doing something wrong. And I think the big thing that's changed for me is that I participated in that shaming in the sense that <laughs> if someone was staring at me because it made me uncomfortable, I would sometimes be like, stop looking at me. Of course. But I would stare back or I'd kind of get, you know, tense and I would get frustrated. And, and if you look at, you know, across culture, there are all these examples of staring being a dangerous thing, whether it be the Narcissus myth or Medusa or the myth of the evil eye, which is in, you know, iterations are in almost every culture that you could think of. Mm. And there are all these ways in which we're taught as we evolve that staring is this evil or difficult or dangerous or illicit or cruel or rude thing to do. But if we look back at the babies, it's like there is this other path, which is the and this is what Rosemary Garland Thompson talks about so beautifully is to look at the staring moment and hoping that what side, what, what emotion comes after the stare is a desire for knowledge Mm. rather than a desire to retreat or feel embarrassed or feel shame for doing the staring. 
And so she thinks that there are these opportunities for people in this starer-starey relationship to sort of look at the knowledge that they can form about each other and the engagement that they can have. And I don't think she means that the stare literally comes up to me and stops me and says, Explain <laughs> that's not it, but that maybe the stare has an internal moment of engagement and a desire for knowledge where they either ask themselves, why, why mm. am I having this reaction? Or they think maybe I'm going to, you know, I don't see a lot of disabled people. Like, why is that? Or I'm staring at this disabled body struggling upstairs. It's frustrating to me that things aren't more accessible to them. Just whatever that process of knowledge is. So to turn that encounter into something, mm. a natural encounter into something positive, rather than an excuse to shut down or look away or feel some sort of shame. And for a disabled person that those words don't stare, they just, they actually, even though they're almost always well-intentioned, they're further stigmatize uh, the disabled body rather than encourage people to in some way form a knowledgeable relationship, Mm. even if it's within themselves and they never have a conversation with that person. I'm so glad you explained that because um, I was thinking, I don't have children myself, but I was just thinking uh, when you started talking about this book and when I went to look at it, I kept thinking about how the way that children stare at things, and it is a very different way to the way that adults stare. And there must be a point, presumably, like you've explained, that they become socially conditioned to think of it as an inappropriate thing to do. And whereas actually, it's only really by looking at something that you can actually understand it. I mean, whether it's a person, whether it's an object, whether, you know, this is very important, but being told to not stare, to not look at something, to not engage with it is perhaps not always the best, you know, advice to be given, right? Absolutely. And I, and I understand why that advice exists because there are, there's so many times where quite frankly, I'm just at the grocery store and I don't want to be stared at. <laughs> you know, like It's exhausting. It's work. It's emotional labor in yeah. it, even, even when it's kids. And I'm not yeah. proud of this, but sometimes I just hate kids staring at me. Like that's all real, but, <laughs> but it's not helpful, right? It's not, mm. I don't do myself or any other disabled person any favors or not even disabled person, any person in a sterile body, which is all of us, depending mm. on context. So I don't do them any favors by, by leaning into the coldness or the possibility of reinforcing that this thing is shameful, that I, that yeah. looking at me and asking a question of me with your gaze is a necessarily shameful thing. The actual shameful thing is to default into disgust or rejection or a refusal of the reality of the person you're looking at. Yeah. But that questioning or that curiosity, it could be a pathway to a more general acceptance of mm. bodies on the vast scale variation that that we exist upon. Yeah. So, well, particularly, I suppose, because there's such a long history and quite a recent history let's be honest of like disabled bodies being hidden away from what people like to think of as normal society or bodies that don't conform in certain ways of being things that we traditionally thought we shouldn't be looking at so you don't want to exacerbate that right that's a kind of something that is not you personally one doesn't want to exacerbate that it is the whole history of it's the current history of disability absolutely it's and the disabled body occupies this strange contradiction in that historically it's always been hidden, but also historically it's always been on display. Mm. So the history of disability is seeing historical references to disability are about disabled bodies being circus freaks, being medical curiosities, being used in clinical settings to illuminate the difference between normal and abnormal, to almost like mystify or deify the disabled body as some sort of weird intersection between some other godly thing and creature. That's a a big thing in the sort of history of how people thought Um, as a bad omen. That's often disabled person is a bad omen and sort of mystified in that way. But at the same, so very on display, bodies very on display in that sense, but in the same way, 
very hidden away, especially in terms of polite society or integrated yeah. into sort of the normal world or something. In that way, we're very excluded. And I think that continues today. We see a difference. And I think actually Instagram is a really powerful tool because there are lots of really great disability influencers who can have their own Instagram page and be their own lens, right? Take their mm-hmm. own pictures or set up their own content and you can follow them and see them present their bodies in the way that they really want to do that. But there still aren't a whole lot of markers of cultural saturation of inherent value around the disabled body, by which I mean, I don't know. I can't think of too many disabled bodies that have been on the cover of magazines. I don't see them in fashion shows. I don't see them as part of makeup campaigns. I don't see the association of value and beauty or power or excellence. Like there just isn't a lot of that culturally saturated, you know, that cultural saturation of value that you are seeing a little bit more with other attempts to diversify the content that we see or in a push, especially in recent years for inclusion. You are starting to see different people on the covers of magazines or different faces or skin types, you know, used in beauty magazines that I what or in beauty campaigns that I wasn't seeing in the nineties and you're seeing a little bit more. But disability is still so absent from that. Yeah. Um, so we have a long way to go before that narrative of the disabled body being hidden from public spaces feels like history. Yeah. It, yeah. It's still incredibly um problematic today in many ways. We like to I think we like to think we've progressed further than we have, let's put it that way. Oh. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, completely. Our shells be back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Chloe Cooper-Jones about uh, still having quite a long way to go in terms of uh, disabled bodies being in the public eye. Um, Next up, Chloe, I think you're going to tell me about a recent documentary. I'm really fascinated by this, a recent documentary that you are particularly into. (laughs) Yeah, this has nothing to do with my book. It's a real deviation, but I just had to answer honestly. Yeah. Asking me what I was watching, but I've recently become totally obsessed with um formula one racing (laughs) i must admit i did not expect to see this as your answer but i'm fascinated tell me about it what is it about formula one and tell me why i should get obsessed with it because i know nothing i will this is a favorite topic of mine so i'm very excited to talk about it well i don't know if it's a if this is as a big deal in in the uk as it is in the states because i think this docuseries is sort of primarily aimed toward trying to get Americans to care about Formula One. But there's this docuseries called Drive to Survive, and it's on Netflix. Do you guys have this? Have you heard of this? I think I've heard of it, but I'm not sure if it's on the UK Netflix. So I have to let listeners check out that for themselves. But I will look into it. So it, it uh, there was a recent critic in New York Mag who said it's – the Real Housewives series. Do you know what I'm talking about? This is yeah, real, yeah. It's, it's the real house. It's exactly the same sort of reality television structure of the Real Housewives, but it's about Formula One racing. 
It's so fascinating because, okay, so Formula One, I didn't know anything about this. So there's probably a listener that's going to hear this and go like, oh my gosh, she's such an idiot. She knows nothing. I accept that. It's true. I know nothing, but but it's um, it's such a fascinating sport. And it's, I think, a really hard sport to get into if you're not somehow already involved with it or, or sort of, it, it has a high barrier for entry, I think. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of what fascinates me about it it's a similar thing that fascinates me about tennis. And I do write about this in Easy Beauty, my sort of deep love of tennis, which is I come to both of these sports, both tennis and Formula One racing as a novice, having a visual experience that feels very opaque to me, by which I mean in tennis, if you don't know anything about it, it just looks like people hitting a ball back and forth. And you're like, sometimes the ball goes out and then I guess somebody gets a point, but like, I don't know how hard is it to hit a ball (laughs) back and forth, but then you could watch an entire tennis match. But then the more you learn about it, the more you learn about strategy and technique and subtlety and the differences and the matches, you know, matchup of different players, it suddenly becomes this experience of your visual perception deepening and focusing and like fine tuning. I love that experience. I love the experience of, of when my knowledge base literally changes what I'm capable of seeing. Mm. That's such a fascinating human experience to me. And I think tennis was a great sport for me to get very obsessed with for this reason. And if you get very deep into tennis, suddenly you're not just watching people hit a ball back and forth you're seeing it's like almost operatic in its drama. And it's like human drama, right. like, you know, man versus man battling all alone on the court. And, you know, they're always out thinking each other. There's also like all these strategies that are very chess-like. So you can see the beginnings of these strategies, you know, several points in advance or several moves within a point in advance. Anyway, I just am very fascinated by that. And Formula One seems similar to me. It, if you watch it, you don't know anything about it. It just looks like people going very fast in cars. Yeah, and also just round and round and round, right? The same track. No, Lucy. Well, yes. Yes and no. <laughs> To the novice eye, they're just going round and round. No, but they play. So they they race in, like, I think this year it's like 17 countries, but okay. each track is very complicated and different. So each track has different turns and it also sometimes has like different elevation. Sometimes you're racing on a track like out in the desert in Bahrain. Other times you're racing in Monaco and city streets. And there's all these different like minute skills that a driver can have to adapt to their environment differently, but then also all the cars, the cars are their own player because you have to make the car really well. And sometimes the cars explode. And so no matter how good of a driver you are, there's always these things to contend with. But then the other thing I think is really fascinating, which is like the real housewives of it all is that your teammate is also your enemy. So like each, each constructor every team has two teammates Mm -hmm. but you're driving the exact same car so you're sort of on the same team but they're also the person you want to beat the most but then also the contracts are pretty short so everybody's kind of switching teams and you know forming allegiances and and rivalry going to the competitor like halfway through the season and it's so it's very there's a lot of there's a lot of drama and then on top of all this human drama is like 20 young men with a death wish. That's always bothered me about it. It just seems so dangerous because I feel like in so I don't get sport generally, which I, I'm sure is a failing of mine, but I can at least understand that how in certain sports, it's a kind of, there's a physical prowess element. There's something you can train and train and train and be the best mm-hmm. in your body. And I'm sure people who are very good at sport and these kind of have a very different relationship to their body that I have with mine. But something like Formula One, I've never really understood because it seems like if your car is not good enough or if you have an accident and you die and like, I don't know, it just, it's, yeah. it's a really odd a really odd thing to be into. I don't think I'd want anyone close to me to be into it. Let's put it that way. But yeah, it's like the the, the racers who are the drivers who are the best are the ones that are able to find and feel, like almost instinctually feel the exact limit of their car's traction, like the tire's traction on a track and speed and like right where that intersects. Because of course, if you go too fast, your tires lose traction and you're off. Yeah. Well, you're into a wall or you're, you know, exploding or whatever, or your car's toppling over. But if you 
go too slow and play it a little safe, like you'll stay on the track, but you'll get beat. So the best drivers are often one aspect of being a good driver is like pushing yourself always to the very limit of disaster and knowing where that limit is. That's so cool. Don't you think? I think it's cool. I think it's like real human stuff. Like this is the thing about sports. Like in every single culture that's ever existed, anthropologists have found three things. One, that every culture on every continent that's ever existed has tried to, in some way, form a language, some version of a language. So there seems to be something essential about human nature that wants to form a communication scheme of some sort. Two, they've found artistic representations, whether it be drawings on a cave wall or the attempt to make a flute out of, you know, a stick or something, or very complicated representational forms. So there seems to be something about artistic representation that's deeply human. And the third thing is a game. So like humans want to play games. We want to play sports most often with a ball of some sort, but sometimes with a car that'll kill you. (laughs) But it's like, it's a deeply human thing to want to engage in, in sport. And so the way that we use sport, that deeply human thing and move it into culture in sometimes deeply problematic ways, right? Mm -hmm. Ways that kill young men, which many sports do. Formula One's not alone in that. And of course, Formula One, I think, is all tied up with really bizarre and possibly bad like funding from Russian Mm -hmm. oligarchs. And I don't know. So I think that there's so much complexity that makes it not a pure thing to love, but a very human, fascinating thing to love. Can I ask you a question? Are there many famous Formula One female drivers? Or is it a very, because my impression is it's a very male-dominated sport. Is that true? Yeah, it's a deeply male-dominated sport. Is there any reason for that? Like, what's the kind of, what's the logic behind that? I know, like, traditionally, obviously, cars have been, the, but, you know, they're not anymore. Women drive cars now, right? So why is it still such a male sport, do you think? That's a good question. There is this one woman, I, I'm so sad that I can't remember her name. Maybe I have to look it up, who I know she was a test driver for a while. And I think she raced Formula 2 or Formula 3 and maybe had one. But it's like, you know, it's very telling that I can't remember her name and yeah. also that her her entry into Formula Racing was like very, very minimal. Um, I think the most direct answer is well formula one racing is very hard to get into it's very expensive Mm. um it usually comes from like karting the kids start like at a very very young age like six or seven and they do go-kart racing oh okay then they would they the good riders get picked up and do you have to get sponsorship and i presume you have to pay for yeah so it's not like if i get really good at driving at at my age like they're gonna let me do it like there's really a path (laughs) Yeah, you should start. That should be. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, if someone would sponsor me, would I would learn it. how to do it. If someone said, come, I will teach. If Lewis Hamilton is listening. Oh, my God, you should do this for a piece. You could write the most amazing piece about learning to do it yourself as well. It would be brilliant. If Lewis Hamilton is listening, find me on Twitter. I want to learn from you. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be great at it. I think that's, you know, I think everybody kind of thinks that though, you know, you're like, oh, I could drive. I think I'd be really good. I want to do it. Maybe I have a little bit of a, that that death wish or something. But I think it's just really hard to get into. And then I think the other answer is um, we're socialized at a very, very early age to find the things that are appropriate outlets yeah. for our energies and creative focus. And I actually think women are given a large variety of those things and young men are given sports a lot of times. So that's maybe true. So they dominate it in a particular way, not because, and then it, yeah, the, they sort of take the spaces away from us in a sense. Right. I think it's, I think it's a lot of things. I, yeah, I think it's both. I think it's like misogyny, keeping women very much out of the sport, not welcoming them into the sport to a certain extent. But I also think it's, a very common thing for young boys to see their only outlet for their energy, their mm-hmm. creativity, the complexity of their feelings to be sports, that that's yeah. the expectation, that that's where that energy goes. That's obviously not, not always the case, but I think in a larger social sense is 
um, is quite apparent that that's an influence. So I think young boys often are just put in any sort of sport with much more regularity than young women are. Yeah, that's probably true. Though this is so weird because just while we're having this conversation, I'm remembering that I actually went to, I actually went to school with a girl who, when we were in like high school level, and she was she learned to drive. She started driving racing cars because her dad, I think, was into it. And she had this incredible car. And I one time got a lift in her car and she literally went from like naught to whatever it was in a second. You know, you're flung back with her driving was incredible. But I don't know what ever happened to her. Formula One racers have to be very strong. This is something they especially have to have very strong necks. So if you look at Formula One racers, oh. they kind of have like a square. There's like no it just is all one neck. It's like head. Yeah, and neck. yeah because they're um the g-forces that they're oh they're being flung back all the time right and from left to right and oh so i just want lewis hamilton to know that i'm starting my neck exercises now (laughs) (laughs) okay i love it again i could keep talking about this for hours but we have to move on unfortunately next up chloe can you tell me about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way yes um so there's a book I really love and I come back to all the time. And I think of it as a book that's really opened uh, a space in in my mind in a really powerful way. And I don't think it's a book that people would initially, well, I won't say that actually, maybe you would initially connect it to feminism, maybe you wouldn't, but it's called The Solace of Open Spaces by Gretel Ehrlich. And she's a fantastic travel writer. Uh, she also, she works as a filmmaker and a lot of other artistic fields. She's like a vastly talented and creative individual. And in this book, she has gone to Wyoming to make a film and her partner dies while she's there. And she decides to stay in Wyoming. And in many ways, this book is about tackling that grief, processing that grief, being in a space also that in some way helps her understand her grief. She's not Mm. from Wyoming. She doesn't have a lot of connection to Wyoming, although she develops one and she lives alone for a lot of this time. And she also starts doing cattle ranching and her hands grow very rough from work. And she just does a completely different type of creative practice. Mm. I think the thing that felt so feminist about it to me is that, throughout the grieving process and throughout thinking about her lover and, and the things that she's lost, she's also tracking where her own creative practice or her own personal sort of assertions of self, how they're going to continue to grow. Mm. And she doesn't always say this explicitly. It's, it's almost always in her actions. It's like, as she's talking about grief, she's also talking about it being so cold that her legs froze to the saddle of her horse. And yet she kept going out, you know, ranching and doing all these, these very physical, but to her, I think also creative things like learning these new things, learning about this new environment Mm -hmm. and also writing the whole time. And to me, that's a really, that's a really, it hits me in a weird, but very special space. And I think it's because, As women, I feel we're often told these narratives where if you make a choice to be a mother or you make a choice to be a wife or you make a choice or even as a daughter or if someone needs you and you're their caretaker or in some sort of way, that those labels are kind of all-encompassing and and Mm -hmm. defining in a way and constraining. Um, a lot of my friends who don't have children will sometimes say, well, I'm worried about becoming a mother because I don't have to give up this and this. And they really see the process of motherhood as a process of giving up all these things that are really important to you. And I know people who feel that way about marriage as well or partnership as well. It's like, well, I'm going to have to sacrifice this essential part of myself in order to take up the mantle of this role of wife or mother or whatever it is. And so whenever women are writing about the duality or the multivarious modes that they are encompassing, Mm. grief and loneliness and agency and new artistic practice, like to let all those things live together 
to me is a model of the kind of feminist that I want to be, which is not, and the kind of woman I just want to be more simply, which is one that is excited about how all these roles that I can inhabit intermingle and that one doesn't require the sacrifice of the other, but can feed the other importantly Mm. and expand the other. I find the process of motherhood to be deeply creative and I've only become a better writer and a better thinker because of my son and the experiences I've had with my son. So it's very important for me to be thinking about maintaining these spheres or these, okay, here's a better way to put it. Um, when I, when I had my son, I thought it was very, very important. And I really attribute this book to helping me think this through. I thought it was very important to maintain my separate spheres of relationships, meaning my relationship to my husband. That was one ball that was up in the air. My yeah. relationship to my son our three, you know, group family relationship, the three of us together, and then the relationship to myself. And that Mm. those were four spheres of agency that all needed to be operating together in harmony. And it doesn't mean that they all have the same priority all the time, but they all exist together and none of them are dropped. Mm. And I think Gretel Ehrlich in a really different form explores that idea. Uh, And it was... It just, it just educated me in a way that um, I'm very grateful for. It sounds really fascinating. I have, I, rather to my shame, I haven't read the, um, I've, I've had it recommended to me on a few occasions and I haven't yet read it, read this book. I'm just wondering though, is there something also quite um, interesting about a woman in a kind of natural environment that's been traditionally male? Like if you think about sort of cattle ranching, you think about wide open American spaces, you know, Wyoming, I think of, you know, cowboys and a very male dominated area. And so to have a woman and to sit a woman in that seems quite radical as well. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I think that's a really big part of it. But I also think there, there seems to be a expectation that if you're grieving your partner, that your that grief is going to monopolize, you know, you're like the good widow waiting for your lover to come back in a ghost form or something. I don't know. There's all these stories like what a good woman does when her beloved dies or when they're gone and you're just waiting for them. And she's the reason why this book is so interesting is like she almost sort of takes that same narrative, right? Because she stays in Wyoming. She stays very alone, very isolated in a lot of ways, although she also interacts with people and meets people and talks to people. So you're almost in that narrative of like the grieving, you know, forever now alone woman, just alone with her thoughts. But that's not where it goes. It actually goes into like a very excited assertion of life and discovery and Mm. inhabiting spaces that are inhospitable both socially and physically because Wyoming is very cold right to the female body you know to to her body and being being in those spaces as sort of reaffirmation of her own self her own curiosity her own creativity and her own love of life her own sense of life right I'm getting the impression that fascinatingly a book that sort of come you know death is obviously a part of this in the in the kind of grieving process but actually it seems to be a book about living that you're describing and about like how you go on living after something terrible happens and how you don't get sort of swept up and you don't not wallow is too strong a word but you don't let that sort of become your entire identity and your entire existence that you can go on and do something else yeah and I think she lets that all in you know she does she does feel tremendous pain and grief and loss, but it's it's one of the balls she has up in the air. You know, mm-hmm. about, it's one of the things she's exploring. It doesn't obliterate all the other things about her. Mm. And I think there's something very. I I think there's an inherent rejection of the expectations that are often put on women in the way that she explores grief you know 
So. I don't know. Maybe this is a really foolish thing to say, but I keep thinking, have you seen that Kelly Reichardt film? Um, is it called Certain Women? It's about like three different women. And I feel like they're living somewhere like Wyoming, but they're sort of lovely, loveliest kind of a terrible word to use, but these very moving sort of was vignettes from their lives that you just sort of see a little bit of them like I don't know why it's making but what you're talking about makes me think of that no I think that's a really great example I love Kelly Riker and I loved First Cow and I'm I wish everybody in the world had seen First Cow yeah Uh, so I think that's right I think Kelly Riker's really exploring a lot of those same things I think that's a wonderful and very apt comparison because I think Kelly Riker does things very quietly yes you know First Cow is very much about capitalism but yeah. It's also about a cow getting milk from a cat. So it's like she buries, I think she's such a f- fascinating artist because I think she has so many ideas and so much philosophy yeah. and so much thought that she just buries so deeply down into like the soil of her films. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of in the fabric. It's not obvious. Yeah. And you're right. Quiet is a word you come back to over and over again. There's a real, and a sort of calm, that's a sense of not she doesn't need to shout about something because it's all there in the, it's knitted into this film, right? On so many different levels. And they're beautiful to watch. I think that book of Gretel Ehrlich's has a, has a tonal kinship. So you'll love it. You should read it. It's real short. I'm going to, I I have a copy of it around somewhere on these shelves. I will, I will search it out now for sure. And our final question today, if I may, Chloe, you're going to tell me about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender who you very much admire. And you've chosen someone fascinating for this. Yeah. Harriet McBride Johnson, who is a writer that I love. She passed away in 2008. I wish I would have some, you know, had the ability to meet her. Uh, She wrote a lot. She wrote a lot of journalism, a lot of essays. She wrote books as well. She was a wheelchair user. Uh, She, the thing that I learned, the way that I discovered her Hmm. and her writing is that she took on and like very directly challenged the philosopher Peter Singer. Yes. That's what she seems sort of, like that's the sort of thing a lot of people know about her that makes her famous, right? Even though there's obviously a lot more going on. Right. And she was, um, she has this very famous piece that was on the cover of the New York Times magazine, Unspeakable Conversations. And it's largely about her interaction with Peter Singer and his ideas that um, young children with cognitive disabilities aren't persons or like literally not. And for anyone who's listening who doesn't know who Peter Singer is, he's arguably the most famous, I actually don't even think this is much of an argument, but arguably the most famous living philosopher, period. And I think he's most certainly the most famous ethical philosopher. So his whole field is ethics, the study of what is right or wrong in the world. This is the thing he's given the absolute most time and attention to. He also argues very passionately for the rights of animals and the rights of people um, to live above the poverty line. He has very important ideas about what it means to care about people you don't see or know. So he, he has so many ideas about what it means to be empathetic to minds other than your own or even animal minds of so minds other than human minds. And yet he has this idea that disability, especially certain types of cognitive disabilities, negate your personhood. And he advocated that killing a baby with a cognitive disability should be completely legal because you're not killing a person. And so Harriet McBride Johnson just goes and talks to him and forms sort of a friendship even, or, well, maybe friendship, we won't say, uh, a very respectful, very Mm -hmm. serious, empathetic dialogue with him. They did a couple events together and she writes about this. And earlier in this conversation, I was talking about, well, you don't see disabled bodies on the cover of magazines, but this is one really important exception. The cover of the New York Times magazine that ran Unspeakable Conversations is a very beautiful portrait of her smiling and um, and looking very much like a person, to, you know, like a real person. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? Deserving of all the full rights of personhood. And she has this section in, in that particular essay where someone, she says like, oh, here are the questions that people asked me when mm. I met Peter Singer. They asked me, was he disgusted by the look of you? And she says, no. And then one of the questions was, was it hard to, in this room full of lots of students where they had this talk, 
was it difficult to voice your objection to the belief that you're not worthy of life? Mm. And he says, I'm not quoting verbatim, but because I'm doing this from memory, but she says, yes, it was very hard and it was also terribly easy. And I think about that so much because this argument that the disabled life is not worth living, Peter Singer's not the first person to, to say it, right? Peter Singer is the first person she's talked to about it. When I talk about my book and I to, to people who haven't read it and I say, well, it begins with these men saying your life isn't worth living. If they're an able-bodied person, they go, oh my God, I can't believe it. If they're a disabled friend of mine, they go, oh, of course, yeah. We've just heard this conversation over and over, this argument over and over, both explicitly and implicitly in culture and and in the eyes and questions and stares of strangers. So the fact that she's able to put such hard things into such clear and quite beautiful language is a gift, I think most simply, um, that makes her... I think uh, a a person we should all admire and and learn from. And I'm so grateful that, that so much of her work exists. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still a true like North star for me sometimes when I'm losing sight of uh, what I really want to do or say, or I'm feeling a little too emotional about it, or I'm feeling that people are misreading me so much or asking me really insensitive questions, you know, like you get in your feelings and you just go like, I don't want to do this hard thing anymore. And then I come back to her work and, and feel fortified again. That's beautiful. I think that is the perfect place to end it. You've spoken so wonderfully about her and I encourage anyone who isn't um, already familiar with her writing to go and enjoy it for themselves and and get what they can out of it as well thank you so much chloe this has been a wonderful conversation um i know i have my homework to go and get on with now so (laughs) which is rare after these but that's a good thing that's a good thing um thank you so much for coming along today and telling us all about your book and these wonderful recommendations thank you so much for having me i really loved talking to you and i look forward to all your new formula one opinions Thank you everyone for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Chloe Cooper-Jones, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.